my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a personal favorite of me and Will. None of those stodgy directors we force ourselves to talk about. Oh, come on. <laughs> we're talking about Larry Cohen. Hell now, yeah. when we started this podcast, I think the first thing you said is like, we should do a Larry Cohen episode. And I think you were probably like, whoa, 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 we gotta space out these, <laughs> yeah. these slam dunk directors, these people that we know about. Now, if you haven't heard of Larry Cohen before... And you should have. Get out there and watch his movies. Yeah, how dare you? You probably know him from films like Q the Winged Serpent and The Stuff and God Told Me To. That's like his trilogy of popular films, I would say. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of the king of the high concept. If you don't know him from those movies, you may know him from some of the screenplays that he's sold over the years. Most notably, Phone Booth, the Joel Schumacher film. Cellular. Cellular. A message is deleted. He did three uh, <laughs> phone or cell phone related thrillers in a row in the 2000s. I read that he actually um, doesn't type up his screenplays. He dictates them into a tape recorder. I think he did it all in one day. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, so, but he's done a ton of other things. Uh, and also, like he he's known for like he sold just dozens of scripts to studios. He's known for all these high concepts. In the 2000s, he sued 20th Century Fox over the movie League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because he insisted that it was a ripoff of a script that he sold them called Cast of Characters huh. or a script that he pitched them. And he said that the Alan Moore novel, that's just a smokescreen, basically. <laughs> I had actually never heard that story. Yeah, I think it's in the New Yorker profile of him from uh, from 10 years ago. And when I think of Larry Cohen, I also think of someone that usually works completely independent. That's something that he really prides himself on is that all of his films, according to him, never really had real producers and that he produced all of them himself. He comes across when he's interviewed as a bit of a control freak, uh, maybe a bit of an egomaniac, but like, I like him. So yeah, that's okay. It doesn't matter. Uh, he, oftentimes he'll tell stories in interviews like, you know, oftentimes they assign you a production assistant, but that guy's usually just a spy of the studio. So I give him 20 bucks and I say, hey, go get yourself a cup of coffee. Well, it's funny that we talk about how independent he is when he actually started kind of working in the city. System, writing TV shows and stuff like that, creating TV shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, he wrote scripts for many of the you know popular shows of the 50s and 60s. The Defenders, uh, The Invaders was, I think, one that he created. Also, The Fugitive, later he wrote for Columbo. And Branded, the Branded. Western that um, is referenced in The Big Lebowski, where the Jeff Bridges and um, John Goodman characters actually go to the uh, creator of Brandon and he's like living in an iron lung and he dies. Yeah. And like Larry Cohen was like, what? They killed me in the big Lebowski? Yeah, because Larry Cohen is the creator of Brandon. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I guess the other thing that's kind of charming about Larry Cohen, well, two things. The first is that his movies are full of kind of radical ideas and are often presented in this weird off-kilter sort of satiric way. His movies don't fit comfortably into either the comedic or dramatic boxes. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is that his movies are often very sloppy uh, and very messy and badly edited or whatever. But like that's part of the personality of the films. They're very charming. They have this kind of loose, improvisatory, jazz-like feel Partly because of the fact that some of them are only, like, borderline competent. I would say <laughs> that his first film, though, Bone, that kind of style plays right into it. Oh, definitely. It's. I was watching it again uh, j just before this podcast, thinking that it has all the choppiness of a later Larry Cohen movie. It has all the weird off-kilter editing, but it's marshaled into a style. So Bone was a film that Larry Cohen um, produced, wrote, and directed himself. It stars... Um, Yafet Kodo. 
and it's about Yafit Koto playing a kind of um, not he's not he's not really a pool repairman. He just shows up at the Beverly Hills house of a rich white couple, takes them hostage. And just kind of play psychological mind games with them. Uh, we find out that the patriarch of the family who wants to appear rich isn't actually rich. He's in serious financial trouble. There's no money at the house. So he goes off to the bank to try to, you know, scrounge up some money for this guy. And meanwhile, Yafet Koto stays at the house with the wife, basically threatening to rape and kill her. Now, Larry Cohen has talked about this movie in pretty bitter terms that... Mm. It never took off in the way that he thought it was going to. Um, he compared himself to Mike Nichols or the style that Nichols was using in films like The Graduate and Catch-22 at the time. And Carnal Knowledge and, also. And it's very um, evident that that's kind of what he was going for. Well, it's the movie that establishes, I think, his uh, jaundiced view of, say, the patriarchal family unit um, and just sort of like the whole idea of kind of like keeping up appearances in this uh, bourgeois capitalist society so in this movie the husband goes off you know he he's trying to present himself as this rich guy when he isn't he goes off to get money to basically bail out his wife from this rape and murder but then as he's going off to the bank he realized you know what i don't even like my wife i'm gonna run off with this girl i just met Jeannie berlin meanwhile when it comes time uh, sorry trigger warning guys like th- this movie is really brutally satirical mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes time for Yafet Kodo to actually rape the wife, he's basically impotent. Yeah, he says that, you know, they need to fight back, but not fight back in that way. And even then, it's not really doing it for him anymore. But he says at one point, I'm just a big black buck doing what's expected of him. So right there, you know, the movie is all about kind of, you know, the people in this movie feel that they've had these identities put on them by society and they've kind of bought into these identities. <laughs> But then the housewife decides to seduce Bone, the Yafet Koto character, and then together they're going to kill her husband Mm -hmm. and collect on the insurance, basically. And all through this, the husband is just trying to avoid all of his responsibilities. And as the film goes along, they just peel away at the kind of reality that they've established, which is pretty miserable from the Mm get-go, but like it's even worse, like... Um, the husband killed a dog that he used to work with and that their son is trapped in a prison that maybe because they didn't want to help him at all and just ignored him because they didn't right, fit in Vietnam, in, yeah. in Vietnam because it doesn't fit the image that they had for him. But while we're talking about this film, it's also very funny. It's funny, but in sort of like an off kilter, it's not really ha ha funny. I laughed. It, oh yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, I found the humor. I think Cohen is at his best when the humor is just sort of like simmering beneath the surface, or it's more just kind of like about the attitude of the characters of the movie. The two movies that he's made that are really outright comedies, Full Moon High and Wicked Stepmother, I think are just unwatchable. Well, you know what? I can enjoy Full Moon High in the kind of cracked magazine style that it has. I, I gotta tell you, I've watched the first twenty minutes of it several times. I tried again this week. Couldn't get through it? I hate it. (laughs) You know what? It was fine for me. Uh, I chuckled every now and then. But Bone, one of the reasons that it didn't really take off as well is that um, uh, Larry Cohen sold the movie to Jack B. Harris, Mm. the producer of The Blob, and um, he distributed Dark Star as well. Okay. And he actually advertised the film as a black exploitation picture, which it is not. And then when that didn't work, he tried to sell it as a sexploitation movie. <laughs> which it is not. There's a great poster where he changed the title to Housewife, and it has the, the character, like, you know, <laughs> looking like a dog in heat, basically. 
<laughs> well, after that, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it wasn't that much of a final financial success. Uh, Cohen went on to make Black Caesar. Well, Sam Arkoff and the other people at American International Pictures saw Bone and apparently said to Larry Cohen, you seem to be good with these black actors. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how Larry Cohen tells it, which, of course, is absurd. But, yeah. but then he was able to, yeah, Black Caesar... Basically, uh, a riff on Little Caesar with Fred Williamson as, you know, a Harlem crime boss. Great movie. I love it. It's been a while since I've seen it. But what I like about this movie is it's the movie that kind of establishes Cohen as this great, like, guerrilla chronicler of New York. Absolutely. There's scenes of, like, Fred Williamson, like, gut shot, bleeding everywhere, just walking through the streets of downtown New York. And you can see all the passerbys are, like, looking at him. Because this is the kind of trademark thing that Cohen would do, which was go just shoot stuff without permission, just get it quick and just get out. Yeah, like, God knows if he ever got a permit. I mean, like, there are lots of scenes in his movies that, I mean, the city really breathes. I like how in a lot of his New York movies, if characters are inside you hear the car horns outside you hear the traffic sounds of the street um i was just watching uh, a bit of the ambulance again uh his movie with eric roberts which, which he made very later in his career yeah and it opens with uh, kind of a skeezy scene of eric roberts trying to pick up a girl in the new york streets but like the streets are so busy and we see eric roberts from such a distance and it, i think what happened is he just like was filming eric roberts from a distance absolutely with a mic uh, and it, there are times when it looks like he's getting lost in the crowd. <laughs> I mean, that's what makes his films kind of feel organic and at the same time very messy in the way they're put together. Because when you shoot on the streets, you use whatever shots you can get. One more thing along these lines. One of the most famous stories from Larry Cohen's career is the fact that he stole a shot in the like New York, uh, what was it, St. Patrick's Day Parade or yeah, something? Yeah, in God Told Me To. Which, which is the scene where uh, a policeman played by no less than Andy Kaufman... <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, plays uh, one of the people who's been possessed by this godlike spirit and starts killing people. So you see these shots of just Andy Kaufman, you know, in a police uniform, marching along with the rest of the police officers. And then I don't know how Cohen did it, but Andy Kaufman like pulls out a gun and starts shooting at people. And the other cops like, it must have been tricky editing going on. Um, he went on. We'll talk about God me, uh, Told Me To in a sec, because yeah. he didn't make, uh, wait, did he make, I think he made God Told Me To next, didn't he? He made it after It's Alive. Oh, yeah. But before God Told Me To, he made probably, I want to use the word classiest very loosely. It was his biggest financial success. Which is It's Alive, also known as the Killer Baby movie. Mm -hmm. It had a Bernard Her Herman score. It had special effects by a very young Rick Baker. Mm -hmm. Not very good. <laughs> no, but but fun. They're fun. I actually think it's one of the rare horror movies where it's a little more interesting between the horror scenes. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> I watched it um, just today, actually. And what I discovered was that I had forgotten how kind of banal it is between the baby attacks. Because mm -hmm. basically this baby is born, kills uh, everybody in the hospital room, escapes. And then the mother and father just kind of go on with their lives. But it has, I, I'm not sure if I'd call it a satirical as his later movies, but it's a very kind of like socially conscious film. Uh, again, you know, the distrust of the patriarchal capitalist family unit here. I'm just throwing around like academic buzzwords, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I mean, this is a movie that uh, last week we talked about the Canadian, the late Canadian film theorist, Robin Wood, who talked about the progressive and the reactionary horror film, which if, if you've forgotten, uh, or if you didn't listen last week, how shame you? on you. Yeah. Uh, he often interpreted the monster as being this manifestation of society's repressions or society's fears. Um, and 
the progressive horror movie is one that the monster either wins or it's a or the monster keeps existing and there therefore the status quo is not restored uh, and perhaps a a better vision (laughs) of society is possible but he talks about in, in this movie it seems like a very idyllic family unit but there are sort of like cracks in the family unit. We find out that, well, before they gave birth to the child, they considered abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody considers abortion, the right. father says. So I, I'm just going to read a passage by what Ro- of what Robin Woods said about the movie. He said, uh, There are possible explanations for the monstrous baby. Pollution and the indiscriminate use of chemicals. Another possible explanation will be offered later. The irresponsible development of inadequately tested medication, birth control pills, etc. But the explanations never go beyond suggestion. None is ever identified as the cause. The effect is not at all to limit the meaning of the baby, but rather to extend it. It is as if it's the product of the contemporary nuclear family. It's also the product of a whole civilization characterized by various forms of greed and irresponsibility. A civilization for which Frank, the main character, a public relations man, is an apologist. Yeah, because the father the entire time, once his monster baby is born, he's like, well, it's not my baby. Kill it. I don't care about it. Just Mm -hmm. let it go. Until, obviously, the tragic finale. (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, there's also, in this movie, you see Cohen developing his affection for, you know, outcasts. Yeah. Uh, which continues throughout. There's this amazing scene where two police officers find a dead body, and instead of wondering where the dead baby or anything like that is, they kind of go, you know, I'm not made for hunting killer babies. He's like, my wife's pregnant. And he's like, oh, no, yeah, don't worry. It'll all be fine. Robin Wood also pointed out that uh, a lot of Cohen's movies are progressive in the sense that it's about undercutting sort of the traditional masculine hero. So the hero either doesn't really win or realizes that the system that he's working in, that he cannot be changed and that it's fundamentally corrupt. So, I mean, in this movie, uh, the John P. Ryan father character is just like so inadequate in so many ways. Like the the patriarchal family unit that he's working in is fundamentally corrupt. But later on, like J. Edgar Hoover in the private files of J. Edgar Hoover, you know, he's both uh, he's both one of the reasons the system is corrupt and he's just totally brought down by the corruption of the system, you know. There's no way to win, Will! Like, there are no heroes in the, the private files of J. Edgar Hoover. Which is another Larry Cohen film. Right, whereas Robin Wood, and I'll, I promise I'll stop quoting Robin Wood in a moment, but Robin Wood points out that he puts it in contrast to all the president's men, mm-hmm. which suggests that, well, if you've got these two heroic characters like Woodward and Bernstein, the system can write itself. But uh, Cohen's movie, The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover, is much more pessimistic. And the film that he made after It's Alive, God Told Me To, has a very similar bent, where the hero discovers he's also part of the problem. Right. Well, in that movie... uh, do you want to describe what the movie's about? <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. So there's a bunch, a rash of killings and uh, murders and suicides that are happening where the people that do it say, God told me to right before they usually end their lives. Mm-hmm. So a detective kind of um, goes out on the beat trying to figure out why this is. And the final answer is insane. And also spoiled on some of the posters that I saw. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess, do you want to spoil it? Yeah, now? we'll spoil God told me to. But you should see it. Come yeah, on. you should see it. Pause. Go watch it. Come right back. There you go. Nice to see you. It was great, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a the thing about God told me to is I I love kind of the ideas in it. I love the weirdness of it. But it's not a really film that you're like, I'm going to give this a watch again. Well, it's not as funny as some of the other Cohen ones. It's pretty deadly serious. And 
it's the movie where Cohen's sloppiness, I think, really compromises it. I think the story is like kind of ineptly told. Mm. Like Sandy Dennis as the uh, cop's wife disappears for an hour. <laughs> and then when she comes back, it's like, oh, wait, who the hell is this? But none of that matters. All that matters is how it ends. Okay. So uh, he discovers that the the God figure is this kind of like... Jesus beatnik... It's this gay, androgynous Jesus beatnik who has a vagina. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And, you know, we find out it's not really specifically commented upon, but we get the sense that a lot of the victims or, or, or the victims of this creature. Well, I don't know if they're even victims. A lot of the people who he's possessed are basically coded as gay. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them kills his whole family. Yeah. Um, So, I don't know. It's almost as if there's this sense that this gay beatnik Jesus wants to like eradicate this system and create a new one. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I don't, I don't even know. Right. Like, I don't even know either when that movie, but like, ended... the, but, but like when the fa- when this guy kills his family, it's almost like suggesting that, uh, you know, he wants to move beyond, beyond sexuality yeah, exactly. or anything. So yeah, the movie ends with Tony Lobianco killing him. But it's a very downbeat ending. Mm-hmm. And Tony Bianco, the main character, is kind of portrayed almost as a devil figure as well. Yeah. Because there's a big twist at the end. Yeah. Where I, they're brothers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so uh, other than God Told Me To, like we said at the beginning, Larry Cohen is really known for two films. Cue the Winged Serpent and The Stuff. Two of my favorite movies. Cue honestly. the Winged Serpent is so much fun. So uh, maybe I could tell the story of how this movie apparently came about. Go. So, uh, I mean, this is almost like a creation myth at this point. I don't even know how much of it is true. But Cohen claims that, so he was hired to write and direct uh, a Mickey Spillane detective movie called I, the Jury. Which he was hired for and he directed a few weeks on. Yeah. And then he got fired, Mm -hmm. I guess, because he's, you know, a bit of a control freak and can't take producers hovering over his shoulder. Have you seen the movie? It's fine. I haven't seen it, no. Yeah. But he was quite despondent, but then thought, well, I'll show them. I'll make my own movie. So he claims that within a week, he was shooting on cue the winged serpent. He either wrote this script in a hurry or he like pulled it out of the drawer. He got Sam Arkoff on board to finance it. He called uh, David Carradine, who was in Cannes and was his old army buddy and said, hey, come over. I got a movie for you. It doesn't matter what it's about. Just come over. <laughs> and he claims that he just met Michael Moriarty in a restaurant and like sold him on the idea. And this was right after Michael Moriarty had won the Emmy and the Golden Globe for the Holocaust miniseries. So he was very hot at the time. <laughs> and so with this all-star cast, they decide to make a picture about a giant stop-motion Aztec god. Yeah. And like I said before, so much fun. Well, I had forgotten oh, yeah. how much fun it was. Like, can you even summarize the first 15 minutes of this movie? It is almost uh, Isostinian in the way that it's like crafted together. I would say the movie has three strands. Uh, there's this flying winged Aztec god who is rendered through some incredibly cheap looking but charming stop motion by a uh, cheap stop motion master Dave Allen who oh, yeah. uh, did like puppet master and stuff like that there is a fairly straight faced police procedural story with David Carradine and Richard Roundtree as cops um, and then there's Michael Moriarty as this wannabe musician slash wife uh, beater slash wife beater (laughs) and like hoodlum called jimmy quinn so we have to you know preface all this with if you don't know who michael moriarty is you're missing out oh one of my favorite actors he is to larry cohen what klaus kinski is to Werner herzog yeah like 
He's known as a wild man who cannot be controlled. Well, he is apparently very crazy in real life. Like, yes. I mean, he's he's a genius. Anyone would say he's a great actor. Uh, he, you know, he won the Emmy, the Golden Globe, the Tony. Uh, in the 90s, he was on Law & Order, but he had kind of like a Randy Quaid-like meltdown mm-hmm. that led to a bitter war of words in the press between him and the creators of that show. Eventually, he... He now lives in Canada, in Vancouver. He considers himself, like Randy Quaid, a political exile. Uh, and he's a Canadian citizen. And now he writes for, like, right-wing blogs. Like, he's... Oh, boy. I, you know, like, I hate to say it. He's very um, pro-life. Uh, oh, really? There's... Uh, there's. I saw an interview with him on the DVD of Larry Cohen's Pick Me Up, where where he is a great performance, but he talks about how when I was creating this character, I thought about an abortionist. <laughs> and the thing that people who don't be- who believe in abortion will tell you is, and then I kind of stopped watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like, Whoop. you just kind of black out. I don't know if I, if I want to see this. But in Q, he gives the most charming performance for what is essentially a kind of dirtbag character. The movie feels kind of like it's been just invaded by this guy. He's this utter loser who just stumbles upon uh, the area in the Chrysler building where the Aztec god is hiding out. And he kind of has a day where he can lord it over the police. And, you know, he demands a million dollars for him to lead the police there. And there's this great scene where, like, he's leading the police to the hideout. And, you know, all the FBI are, like, marching into the Chrysler building. And Michael Moriarty is just there, like, waving his arm going, go, go, go. (laughs) Every time you see Michael Moriarty in a Larry Cohen film, it feels like all the dialogues, like, just coming off the top of his head. Yeah. And that they had, like, maybe one roll of film. And they're just like, just go, do it. Whatever you do, we're going to keep it well i know that you know this story that the first scene they shot was that scene at the bar at the bitter end yeah where moriarty goes in to ask for a job uh and to play the piano at the bar and he plays this like really bizarre like jazz song called evil dream and apparently what happened was they were just going to shoot this scene at the bar and Larry Cohen saw Michael Moriarty listening to something on his Walkman. He yeah. said, what are you listening to? He said, oh, I'm just listening to some music that I made. And Larry Cohen listens to it and is like, wow, this is crazy. you got to play this in the movie. <laughs> so they just rewrote the whole scene, rewrote the whole character on the first day. I mean, Cohen's really proud that he can do these kind of things, which is on a dime, just rewrite a scene to fit whatever vision he may have. Yeah, which I guess is a reason why he didn't thrive in the studio system. Yeah, because that is not something that the studio system looks very kindly to. He's been fired on at least two movies. Oh, really? There's I, the jury, but there's also this, um, I've never seen it, but this, uh, like detective movie with Billy D. Williams called, Oh, deadly, Illusion. deadly illusion where he has co-director credit on it, but he was fired halfway through. Um, but he's also quite a resourceful filmmaker. So this movie, wicked stepmother, which is the, sadly the last film that betty davis ever acted in well larry cohen wrote an article uh called i killed betty davis that you can find online well that's just him being a high concept (laughs) uh, screenwriter but betty davis i mean she looks about 70 pounds she looks absolutely awful and she left the movie she walked off the movie after a week apparently because she knew how bad she looked in it and they were going to shelve the movie but cohen just went wait a minute i got it we'll rewrite the script so that betty davis turns into a young woman (laughs) It was a um, proto uh, like cabinet of Dr. Parnassus that Terry Gilliam Oh, yeah, movie. yeah. Or it's like Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah, exactly. Like, Betty Davis, uh, I swear if you, like, watch the trailer for Wicked Stepmother, it has all the Betty Davis stuff in it. <laughs> he also made the stuff, which is just very similar to Cue the Winged Serpent, but kind of transposed into the late 80s mode. 
my favorite Larry Cohen film. Oh, is that your favorite one? I think so, yeah. Having seen them both this week, I... I Where Michael Moriarty is giving the most Bill Murray-like performance. I actually watched this movie with two people who had no idea who Larry Cohen is, never heard of the stuff, and had no idea who Michael Moriarty was, and they were entranced. They were like, what is this? Who are these actors? It's absolutely unclassifiable. I think the whole movie sort of takes its tone from Moriarty's performance, Mm -hmm. where it's not quite serious. It's not quite a full-on comedy. It's just unclassifiable and it goes after so many targets just satirically so the movie is about this uh we snack food this ice cream like snack food called the stuff that some people find bubbling up out of the earth and realize they can mass produce into a tasty and addictive uh treat yeah that can be eaten for anything it can lose weight clean stoves you can do anything with the stuff but as the poster asked are you eating it or is it eating you (laughs) it's eating you yeah pretty soon (laughs) the stuff starts bubbling out of people and exploding their heads and doing all sorts of awful things moriarty plays a industrial spy hired by a rival company to find out what the active ingredients in the stuff are and instead he discovers this web of intrigue (laughs) of where it came from and decides to take it down from the inside but like bill murray as you said he has this sort of just like bemused laissez-faire attitude yeah or like lebowski-ish quality throughout the whole movie like at one point he's strapping bombs to his legs to go blow up um some canyons as a distraction Mm -hmm. and uh he just goes don't worry this is my job i got this yeah (laughs) and then he's fought these kind of alien invaders before and it's the movie that really has uh, cohen's full flowering as a satirist so he goes after you know shitty tv commercials ah what a catchy theme song oh yeah can't get enough Enough of of the the stuff stuff. yeah uh he goes after the uh food and drug administration basically uh you know he points out that there are certain laws uh that have passed basically just so that coca-cola doesn't have to reveal its original recipe Mm -hmm. so don't worry the fda gets it by being eaten by a dog yeah the fda played by danny ale he basically suggests that the FDA is just this kind of like corrupt rubber stamp organization that doesn't really, you know, yeah. doesn't really regulate anything. And the movie also indicts us, the consumer, for just being willing to put any shit in our body. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, just as long as it tastes good and as long as everybody else is eating it. Yeah. And basically, I guess the suggestion is just that, so if you drink, if you drink and eat enough of this shit, you're going to die anyway. So here's the stuff, which will kill you instantly. <laughs> but you also get... Puppet dogs, puppet puppet heads exploding, uh, blob-like effects of stuff coming towards people in front of a green screen. I've seen this movie five or six times, and I feel like every time it just gets better. (laughs) It just still holds up? It's just one of those movies that, like, uh, I just like the personality of it. The way that people feel about, like, The Big Lebowski, Mm -hmm. where you see it a few times and it becomes, like, this, like, this place that you go to. (laughs) This, like, attitude. Yeah. Yeah. I love the ending where instead of killing the villains, Moriarty forces them to eat a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. And it ends with them, like, scrambling to eat more because it's so addictive. Yeah, and basically... well, I'm not going to reveal the rest of the ending. Yeah, but it's a great ending. Yeah. And, I mean, he even takes a bite out of those right-wingers with oh, yeah. a Paul Sorvino character. Yeah, who has this great line. Uh, he says, like, America's never lost a war. And then somebody says, what about Vietnam? And he says, that war was lost on the home front. <laughs> <laughs> 
So after the stuff, though, it got pretty rocky for Larry Cohen. Well, there's some stuff. I mean, uh, I I don't think you're a big fan of special effects. I'm not a fan of special effects. I kind of like it. Film starring the actress who should have remained mute in Miss 45. Oh, yeah. uh, (laughs) Zoe Lund. Um, Well, you know, she has a certain charisma. She does. She has a very good look to her. It also has uh, Eric Bogosian, the underground theater artist who, of course, later was the villain in Under Siege 2. (laughs) Uh, I, uh, Playing a Larry Cohen-esque character. Well, more of a Michael Cimino-esque character, really. Right. Uh, it's this this thriller, a very low-budget thriller about uh, a director who has had a big, you know, Cimino or Bogdanovich-like downfall. And then, uh, well, it's his sleaziest movie. He basically films himself, you know, killing a woman that he's just had sex with and then decides to make that the centerpiece of a new movie that he's making. And he has... Uh, Zoe Lund plays a dual role of this woman and an actress that's hired to play her in a movie. So it has shades of vertigo, mm. but it feels a lot more kind of like body double or it's it, his most it's De Palma. So yeah, it's his most De Palma-esque film. Uh, I'm not really sure I can make a real reason defense towards it, except that I just kind of like the feel of it. <laughs> you just like the feel of every Larry Cohen film. Well, not Wicked Stepmother. Did you see um, See China and Die? No, I didn't. <laughs> the pilot he shot for a detective series? No, I'll get to it eventually. It, it just doesn't look very good. No, it doesn't. It's like an hour long. I'm like, no, thank you. I did revisit Return to Salem's Lot, though. Oh, so did I. And... I actually forgot about that, uh, talking about his Rocky period. Even though The Return of the Salem's Lot wasn't very well received when it came out. Um, so Larry Cohen actually written a draft of the Salem's Lot screenplay back in the day before Toby Hooper came on and directed it. And so when they wanted to make a direct-to-video sequel, like it was always meant to go direct-to-video, they got Larry Cohen and said, hey, can you just do this for us? You know, you, you, you're you familiar with the characters and stuff like that. So he went, okay, and then made a film that has nothing to do with the Stephen King original. It really is the uh, Bad Lieutenant Board of Call New Orleans of the Salem's Lot franchise, whereas he, he, he took the vampire village and turned it into this, like, village of... Uh, as if they'd just come over from the Mayflower, these like old American pilgrim type vampires uh, and kind of a, a cute satiric touch is the fact that they don't eat, they don't drink human blood anymore. They drink cow blood because there's, you know, there are a lot of sexually transmitted diseases and a lot of drug use. So but they still human eat blood human blood on special occasions. On special occasions <laughs> yeah, yeah. Holidays. But for the most part, it's just not as reliable anymore. <laughs> and um, something that Will pointed out when we were talking about it is that the film has a kind of dreamlike atmosphere because Michael Moriarty, the the Larry Cohen mainstay mm-hmm. um, plays a kind of mondo documentarian who the vampires kind of utilize to document their society. Mm-hmm. But he never really does it, but he still sticks around and you're not sure how much time has passed. It also has a bit of a stream of consciousness feel to it. Uh, and I'm not sure if this is to Cohen's credit or not, but like the movie opens with Michael Moriarty as this documentary filmmaker at some like South African or South American tribe. Uh, filming, you know, a uh, uh, sacrificial like or a cannibal ritual, and everybody is saying, "Oh, this man, he has no ethics. He's he's, he's cold blooded." And basically, the movie then immediately drops the mondo filmmaker <laughs> angle, and he just becomes a conventional hero for the rest of the movie. Yeah, once he learns <laughs> that the son that he brought to Salem's Lot, which at least they call it Salem's Lot, <laughs> yeah. Um, is being kind of uh, groomed to be the next vampire. He 
turns against him instantly. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to kill you all. Which he does thanks to the help of director Samuel Fuller. Yeah, Samuel Fuller in a... Uh, I mean, Samuel Fuller acted in a lot of stuff, but this might be his like lo- largest role. Did you hear the story of how they like got him down to do it? That Samuel Fuller was in Paris at the time. And um, he's like, I haven't been to America in a long time. And Larry Cohen's like, I'll write a role for you. You can come down for like a few weeks and just hang out with us because you'll have to be in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And he plays like this grizzled vampire hunter who's seemingly immortal. He's great. I think he upstages uh, Michael Moriarty to tell you the they truth. They have a really good chemistry together because yeah. the whole last 30 minutes is just Michael Moriarty and Samuel Fuller going to vampire houses and staking them. Oh, it's great. I think the movie has, an, has a nice look. Um, I like Well, the... shot by um, Danny Pearl, the guy who shot Texas Chainsaw Mask. Oh, okay. Uh, I like the music. It has this really weird like synth score that I'm not sure if it's aged well or not. I just know that I like it. <laughs> that's all that's important. I In the 80s and the 90s, you can really see Cohen like trying to ride the way of you know wherever money was so in in the 70s uh, there were grind houses there were drive-ins so he had fairly reliable i think sources of financing for movies but with video coming in the 80s uh the grind the grind houses and the drive-ins basically dried up so first you see him doing special effects and uh what's the other one perfect strangers mm-hmm. these two really low budget non-union thrillers in new york then you see him doing uh, the stuff, which is kind of like the last of the last of his drive-in type movies. Yeah, it's kind of that '80s fantasy horror boom yeah. that came with stuff like the Blob remake, even like something like Nightmare on Elm Street. And then you see him trying to get in on the direct-to-video boom with uh, Return to Salem's Lot and It's Alive Three: Island of the Alive, which features a giant stop-motion monster and also probably Michael Moriarty's most unhinged performance. <laughs> yes, I enjoy Island of the Alive, but I I don't think. He quite gets the tone right mm. in the same way that he does with the stuff. I think it just doesn't doesn't quite work. I can appreciate some of the later films he made, like The Ambulance, starring Eric Roberts. I like that movie. Who plays a Marvel Comics artist who is also tutored by Stan Lee himself in the movie. Who has a kind of significant supporting role, yeah. I think. Like, uh, yeah, uh, this is back. Watching again, I like. I was reminded of like this was a time when comics were something that adults didn't think about, mm-hmm. and it was just sort of seen as this like weird frivolous job to be a comic artist, and. Uh, Stan Lee could be in a Larry Cohen movie (laughs) (laughs) for a uh, pretty lengthy portion Mm. of the movie. But then Cohen did, I think, a couple of TV movies in the 90s, As Mm. Good as Dead with Tracy Lords. (laughs) And he did uh, one last kind of neo-blaxploitation movie. Which I actually uh, like quite a bit. Original Gangstas. Mm -hmm, Which starred Fred Williamson. uh, Jim Brown. Pam Greer. Yeah. Richard Roundtree. uh, Maybe somebody else. I can't remember. Oh, wow. Superfly, what's his name? I don't remember. Hey. Um, I think that it probably just came at the wrong time mm-hmm. to like catch it because I think it was was it pre Tarantino or post Tarantino? I think it was like maybe immediately post. It was I think post Pulp Fiction, but not post Jackie Brown. Yeah, but I mean either way, uh, I think it's a movie that had fairly limited appeal mm-hmm. and would still have pretty limited appeal today. But it's it's a fun movie. Uh, it's it like kind of hits its marks. It's very watchable. It feels to me more like a Fred Williamson movie than a Larry Cohen movie. Yeah, I, I can understand what you mean. I feel like Larry Cohen's uh, authorial presence is really only there just in the fact that it moves pretty quickly and is is kind of fun. And after that, Larry Cohen basically has just lived in the script writer world. 
Yeah. As in that his films have been produced as screenplays. Now, I don't understand why these three phone-based thrillers got made or why more Larry Cohen films aren't getting made, but I can only put it down to the fact that studios love to buy high-concept screenplays and then go, well, you know, we have to rewrite this, and then they rewrite it, and then nobody wants to make it. Right. I mean, I think he sold dozens of screenplays. Uh, he lives in a castle somewhere, so... Some of them have produced. Guilty as Sin was made by Sidney Lumet, uh, you know... a Ten years ago, there was that movie Captivity, Ugh. which is horrible. Um, I mean, in the 80s, bestseller yeah. uh, came out, um, which is a pretty decent James Woods picture. Also, Body Snatchers by Abel Ferrara. Yeah, he just did the story for that one. Right. He sold a screenplay that was... He came up with the idea, basically, of having it be set on a military base, mm-hmm. which is a good idea. And then, of course, there's his long collaboration with Bill Lustig. Oh, we didn't even talk about that. Well, let's talk about it. Uh, I know that Larry Cohen in interviews really turns his nose up at Bill Lustig. Which is weird to me because like, he's done multiple commentaries with Bill Lustig. And Bill Lustig has released a chunk of his movies on Blu-ray and DVD, which they do commentary tracks together. Yeah, I don't know. I love Lustig. I, 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 I love Lustig yeah. as well. But what was that quote you said that Larry Cohen said? So the- I read this in this book uh, that came out pretty recently called Larry Cohen, The Stuff of Gods and Monsters. And... In that book, Cohen says, with uh, Bill Lustig, for the first time I was working with a director whose talent I did not respect. That's insane. I think, if I can just psychoanalyze him for a minute, I think uh, Cohen, you know, thinks of himself as a studio filmmaker. He has said that. Sort of resents that he's been, had this exploitation filmmaker label applied to him and Do doesn't like oh, you, being you in mean, that yeah, world. Yeah, Cohen feels Yeah, that Cohen way. does. Not Lustig, because Lustig Lustig loves, loves exploitation. Yeah. And it could have been also that Lustig, at the point that they made Maniac Cop, I think that the previous films he had made were Maniac and maybe Vigilante. But both of those are great pictures. I love them, so, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Maniac Cop was... Uh, they did three Maniac Cop films together with Cohen writing and Lustig directing. Uh, they did Uncle Sam. Terrible movie. I've never seen it, actually. Really? Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's not good. It mm-hmm. feels like that direct-to-video kind of, you know, low-budget feel. You know, maybe I watched it at a time that I was too mean on these films. Maybe I would enjoy it now. I've grown much softer in my old age. So, um, <laughs> But I love Maniac Cop 1. Uh, I really like Maniac Cop 2. Maniac Cop 3 is garbage, obviously. Larry Cohen and William Lustig quit halfway through making that movie. Anyway, uh, Cohen seems to be basically in a state of semi-retirement at this point. I mm. mean, I think he still writes scripts. Maybe he's not... You can go to his website them. and find screenplays he's written, and he writes like, please read them with a group of friends and like have a movie of the mind. We should do that. <laughs> like a live Larry Cohen Let's do that reading. for your Halloween party this year. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. Uh, but he did have one last directorial effort in the mid-2000s, mm. which was, I think, his first movie in 10 years and is his last movie to date. It's an episode of the Masters of Horror anthology series. Which was pretty shaky overall. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a very noble project. Uh, I think the problem with that series... Uh, if you don't know it, it was where they got a bunch of, you know, masters of horror like John Carpenter, Joe Dante, Toby Hooper, mm. uh, others, to, uh, Takashi Meek, Dario Argento, to make a one hour horror movie based on just whatever they wanted. Yeah. Carte Blanche. Uh, yeah. They could do any violence that they wanted, except for Takashi Miike. His episode never aired because it was too rough for them. <laughs> and, um, you know, they had like limited budgets and stuff like that. The biggest problem was, and I watched a few episodes this week after watching Pick Me Up is that they look so cheap. They look really cheap, and there's just kind of a sense that everyone's a little past their prime. 
I would argue that Larry Cohen is not. Well, not Larry Cohen, but I'm thinking like John Carpenter has Ugh. two episodes, which the premises are so great. Oh, they're so good. And you think, God, if if he were just in the 70s, he would knock this out of the park. But yeah, Larry Cohen's picked me up. Uh, do you want to talk about it? I think yeah, it's really good. Yeah, so uh, the high concept behind this one, like any Larry Cohen pictures, and he kind of bristles a little bit when people call him a high concept filmmaker. Well, that's what he is. Sorry. <laughs> um, is that... Uh, a bus breaks down and a bunch of people get off the bus and one particular um, woman played by uh, Feruza Balk becomes the target of two serial killers. One of them played by Michael Moriarty. One of them played by, I don't know who he is. Yeah. Michael Moriarty plays Devil, a I guess. seemingly kindly bus driver. Uh, truck driver. A truck driver who it turns out is anything but. And Moriarty gives a great performance just in this like movie. Just like the full on, I'm just glad that we got this one last great Moriarty performance. I, watching <laughs> the movie, I actually felt, man, I wish this was 90 minutes. Yeah. And that's probably my only criticism I can give it. Compared to the other ones, this one looks pretty good, too. Oh, yeah. He captures Vancouver and it's kind of mistrune, uh, mist, uh, misty, halt, yeah, highways very well. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it, it, it's kind of tense, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's a bit of suspense, but I think fundamentally what I like about it is the fact that it's just Moriarty kind of unleashed. Yeah. Like, there's this great scene. It's almost like a precursor to the Javier Bardem coin, do- coin toss scene in No Country for Old Men, mm-hmm. where it's, you know him showing off this gun to a store owner. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, exactly. And he like takes the clip out and he gives the gun to the owner and he's like, shoot me, shoot me. And he's got this kind of bemused, but I think uh, Moriarty had a lot of uh, beers and a lot of uh, cigarettes in the 20 years since we last saw him. I remember you saying that you couldn't believe how his voice had gone from pretty normal to like a gravelly, like in almost... 10 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Before we leave, we have to talk about Michael Moriarty's greatest performance. Oh, my God. You've, you've got to just look it up on YouTube. Look up Michael Moriarty on the Mike Bullard show. So for people who don't know who Mike Bullard was, he was a Canadian celebrity? Uh, he was uh, Canada's first successful late night talk show. Forgotten now. Totally forgotten. Yeah. But yeah, he had, a, he had a very like Letterman-esque show. And he was like pretty popular at the time honestly like he was on you know like every six months toronto life would put him on the cover or, or mclean's or something he and it was like he's canada's talk show the only time i've heard mike bullard mentioned in the last decade is you mentioning him he has a radio show on oh, so uh, news talk 1010 where he expounds on politics and stuff which i used to listen to a lot when i had a car is he like a crazy right-wing guy or? he's more like a centrist like leaning okay. right uh, he's like you know he's a tim hortons conservative but anyway so Michael Moriarty comes on the show. I forget what he, was he advertising something. I don't or, know, but he comes on, and it's the most awkward non-interview ever. Like Moriarty just kind of like pokes his head out from from backstage, and then sort of like ambles on stage a little bit, and starts just like he's holding a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other, and he seems like just plastered out of his mind. Bullard has to go over and like drag him to sit down basically and then boy i just tag you know people in canada tell me i should go on mike bullard show so here i am and then he just sits there for like less than a minute and a half and he goes well this is over and he gets up what what spawns that is the fact that bullard said uh so are you enjoying uh, being in canada and i say that just so uh you can know where you are (laughs) (laughs) and moriarty just stands up and Mike Buller goes, well, I guess this is over. <laughs> and then Marty just leaves. I think it's just my favorite talk show interview ever. And But back to Larry Cohen, 
who is a treasure. Yeah. And while he is loved by a lot of cinephiles, I feel that he needs like a movie like Bone, which has a good DVD release from Blue Underground, I believe, mm-hmm. um, to be released on like Criterion or something like that. It needs to be. It just needs that extra little push mm-hmm. over the edge because, you know, it doesn't have a really big star to get people interested yeah. in it. I mean, Yafet Kodo. But... Giving probably his career best performance. Yeah, he's great. Uh, but yeah, it deserves to be reconsidered as this like underground, mm-hmm. uh, weird, subversive film. All right. So what are we doing next week, Will? Oh, well, Shocktober continues. Uh, this is a Shocktober episode, by <laughs> the way. That's right. I didn't even mention it at the beginning. So we're going to just keep running. The, uh, we're going to keep. <laughs> we're going to keep riding this gravy train and we're going to just pander to the masses. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I want to do it, too. We're going to talk about the Friday the 13th series, baby. Oh, joy. <laughs> do, you, do you like them? Uh, you know what? I do like them. I like them, too. I th- I'm not going to say they're good, but I like them. <laughs> I really like Friday the 13th Part 6, and that's pretty much it. I'm a fan of Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I have never seen Jason Takes Manhattan in its entirety. Really? No. So, so... you didn't get to the part where he gets to Manhattan? <laughs> no, obviously not. <laughs> or maybe my... I just watched that part. It's like 80% of the movie's on the boat. <laughs> yeah, Jason Takes a Boat is what it's also yeah. called. So we're going to dig into that, talk about, um, I don't know, gender relations. Yeah, men, them. women, and chainsaw shit. Um, oh, uh, slasher movies. Yeah, um, slasher movies in general, which I don't believe we've done yet. No. Okay, so... As we say every week, send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Go on iTunes, rate and review us. I don't remember the last person who reviewed us on iTunes. Oh, uh, my friend Megan reviewed us. <laughs> oh, did she? Yeah, she wrote, Will is a dreamboat. <laughs> so I want to say thank you very much. But that is a sham review. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. No, we'll take sham reviews. <laughs> okay, yeah. Don't write you... sham reviews yeah. for us. Five stars. Yeah. All right. Well, my name is Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So I was looking at the theater listings of the AMC Young and Dundas, which I usually do, because they always have, like, weird movies that pop up, like, uh, foreign movies from, like, China and South Korea, and I saw that there was, like, a Three uh, Stooges festival going on, and I sent it to you because you're the Three Stooges expert, and you went. (laughs) Yeah, of course I did. Well, I was intrigued because it said in 3D, but it turns out the Three Stooges made two 3D short films in the 50s with mm-hmm. Shemp. So, yeah. so they showed those and they showed four Curly films. And how, how, like, it was a packed house, right? I would say there were, like, maybe eight or nine other people. Weirdly enough, there were two two groups of um, young women, mm-hmm. believe it or not. I mean, I'd, you know, to go against <laughs> the stereotype that women don't like the Three Stooges, there were two groups of young women who were eating it up so much. They loved it. They laughed. So I think they were on shrooms. Yeah, honestly. I was going to say that. Did you think illegal substances were involved? Like, it's the only explanation. But I mean, I liked it, though, because yeah. if you're going to see the Three Stooges in an empty theater, it's good to hear somebody laughing. And you hear that the 3D ones were like, I thought they had just like remastered classic Three, uh, three Stooges shorts into Third Dimension. But you said that there was like P shots of like fingers going toward the yeah camera. there are it'll be like mo will be like why i oughta then it cuts to mo head on with his fingers going straight into the camera and, and then it cuts to shemp you know being this, hit this uh do you think that's like commentary like it's a funny games like involving yeah, you and the violence uh, going on yeah it's brechtian yeah um but this begs the question i laughed my ass off by the way i mean a plumbing we will go is well, the classics oh it is so funny. Oh, my God. Who is this for? 
obviously it felt like there was no advertising for it. Like it just, I think it's a shame. I, I saw the three stooges a few years ago at the review. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, I'm not going to pretend it was a sold out house, <laughs> but it had a bigger crowd. And I feel like this sort of thing does, is just more naturally suited to like a rap cinema. Do you think there's still a place for like repertory screenings like this in general? And even in multiplexes? Oh God, I hope so. I mean, <laughs> what are we going to do? What movies will we see? Then? Well, I mean, there are so many, um, yeah, I mean, at the multiplex, I mean, this Three Stooges thing was like 15 bucks, but... That, it was 15 bucks? Yeah. That's yeah. ridiculous. But, but I mean, a lot of times, like, I saw City Lights at the Young and Dundas AMC for five bucks. Like, a lot of times they'll have it at a price like that. And, God, I, I live within walking distance for five bucks. I don't know. It sounds, it's a great deal to me. Yeah, I think that usually rep screening should be five bucks, but they're usually 10 bucks probably due to the reason that I don't know how much it takes to rent these kind of places. I do think it's a little sad, though, that, like, most rep cinemas i mean they just do stuff like you know mean girls or the breakfast club mm-hmm. or nothing against those movies of course uh, but oftentimes it's just this kind of same unadventurous choices. labyrinth clue labyrinth clue <laughs> but i mean on the other hand those are the movies that people want to go see yeah. so you gotta you gotta support the weirder stuff if you want to see it yeah i mean the thing is that most of these like cinematex and stuff could only exist and play like full programs of the weirdest filmmakers only because they have a kind of funding right. that allows them to do that like you know the uh you lived in new york the um what's it called the archive oh yeah the anthology film archives um is the one that plays like the weirdest stuff i love that place and like it seems to have no interest in catering to how many people come they're just gonna play it because yeah. it deserves to be seen uh, last time i was in new york i went to see uh, a bunch of short films by the guy who did Thundercrack. yes uh, kurt mcdowell i think mm-hmm. his name is God, I mean, I made, made me just want to fucking move back, you know? And was it like a packed audience or? Yeah, you know, it was like uh, in their smaller theater, I'd say like 15 people. Do they have two theaters? They Yeah, they have a bigger one and a smaller one. Uh, I saw a Frankenhooker in the bigger theater once. <laughs> yeah, because I went down for the, uh, they did like a Kung Fu film festival over like four days. Oh, they did The Dragon Lives Again there. Yeah, that's yeah. what I saw. Oh, nice. Yeah, I just You saw went, it on film? I saw it on Holy film, shit. yeah. I went down by myself. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of my girlfriend, because she's like, you get to go to New York and I don't. And I'm like, I'm just going to see. And I think I saw five Kung Fu movies a day over like three days or four days. I'm actually considering going to New York in December because I've got a friend who lives there now. And uh, w- the the Nighthawk uh, in Brooklyn is playing the Sean Costello porn film, I think, called The Affairs of Janice. I don't know, I have no idea what any of that 35 millimeter. And I'm just so, well, to those out there who know who Sean Costello is, like... The idea of seeing a Sean Costello porn film on film in a theater just blows my mind so much that <laughs> I'm tempted to be make like the jerking trip. off around you or I doubt it. <laughs> I'm curious I'm curious what it would even be. 